If you will join me in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, this morning we will be looking again at verse 16, and we will also look at verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. If you want to follow along in the blue ESV Bible, that is on page 939. The title of our sermon this morning is From Faith for Faith, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are righteousness faith, and live. Now, in 2004, I was still in the army, and I was deployed on a mission in the Hindi Kush mountain range of Afghanistan. It was one of the few times we ever did an operation in the daylight hours. And we had received some intelligence on a high-value target that we've been tracking for a while, but this was the first opportunity we ever had to go after him, and, to, and we had to take that opportunity. Well, the, the weather prevented any air support, which also meant we had to do a ground infiltration in vehicles. And as a light infantry unit, vehicles means pickup trucks. And the largest weapon we had was a 50 caliber mounted on top of a truck along with everyone's rifles and sidearms and explosives. Now, in ground operations, most people assume the most dangerous thing that you can do is the operation itself. But more often than not, it is not the operation, it is the travel, it is the movement to the mission. And this mission was no exception. As we were on the side of a mountain, it was very narrow. The road was filled with with boulders on a road that could only fit about a single truck at a time. And we approached a location, and as we got there, there was a massive explosion at the front of our convoy. And the immediate realization was what is that we had ventured into an ambush. <clears throat> the protocol in an ambush, whenever possible, is to get through it either in front of it or behind it, and as soon as we began to try and move behind it, another explosion happened behind us, and so we were trapped and forced to engage. The opposition was on lower ground than us, however, they were well positioned, they were dug in, they had RPGs and AK-47s, and they opened fire, and the rest of the rest of our, our unit came, and we were seeking to engage the enemy and neutralize the threat, and it took nearly an hour to do so. And as for our men, nobody was killed. However, one man lost his eye, another lost his hearing, another lost his arm, and a few others took on shrapnel. And eventually, we were able to repair everything, get the way forward, exfil our casualties, and finish the mission successfully capturing our target and returning back to our headquarters. And when I think about what it is like to have an overwhelming sense of safety and security in my life, I always remember this experience. I've had many close calls in my life. I've had very hair-raising moments, but none were quite like this one. The other other aspect of this whole experience that I think I will always remember is how quickly the mood changed as soon as we were back inside the walls of safety. 
no longer on high alert, no longer quietly and seriously scanning the surroundings and and responding to every sound that we heard, no longer a laser-like focus on every detail, but once again able to have normal conversations, to joke and to laugh and to be relaxed. It was a stark transition, perhaps even something that would be quite odd to an outsider looking in, given everything that had just happened, and now all of a sudden this sense of euphoria when we know we are safe. Everything changes. Everything is different. Everything is far greater. It's like the air smells different. The birds sound different. The wind on your face feels better. There's nothing like knowing like knowing that you are safe, that you are secure once you have truly experienced danger. Perhaps you've had an experience that you can remember, a house fire or an encounter with someone who is seeking to do you harm or a car accident that you shouldn't have survived or, or a near-death medical experience, whatever it, whatever it was in your life. When you know you are safe, there is relief. There's happiness. There may even be some laughter. I remember when I first came to our church 13 years ago. I was here for about two months. A large group of us went to West Virginia to go skiing and snowboarding. And during one of the runs, a young teenager by the name of Sam Barber went flying off the side of the mountain. And he tumbled over and over and over down, narrowly missing many large trees and boulders on the way down, and and not knowing what I know now, I was concerned. And so I unstrapped unstrapped my snowboard, and I I rushed down to his side, and I said, are you okay? And he said, "Uh, I don't know. And I said, can you move your legs and your arms and your your head? And, And slowly... He made sure everything worked, and he moved around okay, and, and, and eventually we got everything back on and, and headed down the hill, and we've, we've been able to laugh about that moment ever since, but it, it could have been drastically different, right? I wasn't looking forward to calling Melissa and telling her that her son was so uncoordinated that he couldn't make it down a hill, and instead of joking about it today, we were planning a funeral. But why can we laugh about it? Because there is safety. Because he was safe. Because we we could have had a terrible situation, but we avoided a terrible situation because the Lord provided safety and security. There's nothing like knowing we are safe. We are secure. What about you? What have been your experiences? What have been your close calls with and and knowing that then there was safety and security and having a clear sense that everything is actually going to be okay when at one point it seemed like it was going to be really, really, really bad. As as we go back into Romans 1, 16 and 17 this morning, we're going to think about this issue, this thing of safety. What does it mean to be saved from something? As Christians, we often talk about being saved. But very rarely do we put much thought to the question of what we are saved from and what we are saved to. Salvation is very much a part of the Christian experience. Salvation is very much a part of the Christian vocabulary. But like many things, we use this language without giving it much thought. 
Now, this, this is our, our third week looking at verse 16. So if you missed the last two Sundays, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those and, and see what we've said about the first few parts of verse 16. But this morning, we're going to think about that word in verse 16, salvation, and how Paul builds out this idea of salvation as we move into verse 17 and as we continue to lay the foundation of what we will be building on throughout the rest of the book of Romans. So let's read together Romans 1 beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, every day of our lives as Christians, we are being ambushed by the world. We're being ambushed by the flesh. We're being ambushed by the devil. We are always on the precipice of falling down the side of the mountain, as it were. As we move through the trials, as we move through the temptations, as we move through the suffering and the struggle of everyday life. So from where does our help come? Where do we turn for safety? You will recall from verse 16, we saw last week that the gospel, this, this great proclamation of the gospel, the perfect life, the sinner's death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of this was done in the place of sinners like you and me so that we can have true salvation when we believe in Christ by faith. This gospel is the power of God for salvation not just for the rich, not just for the poor, not just for those who look like us or those who don't look like us. No, the power of God for salvation is for everyone who believes. No matter who you are, where you are from, what you have done, where you live, how many good or bad things you think you have done in your life. Christ is available to all who come to Him by faith, and He is available to you too as you, as you humbly submit yourself to His Lordship instead of your own. And this gospel, Paul showed us, is so powerful that it is the very thing that transforms us from the inside out, and it affects not only our hearts, and our lives, but also our relationships with everyone else around us, uniting us as the people of God from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And in Christ, we are one with all of God's people throughout all of time. And collectively, as the family of God, we can all say that we have experienced salvation. We have experienced the joy of being once in danger, but now knowing that we are safe and secure. So what is that part of it, though? We've gathered all the other parts, so let's try to make more sense of the whole this morning. As we move into looking more at verse 17, we would be remiss to not give consideration to the fact that this is the verse in the Bible that in many ways we can say is responsible for the start of the Protestant Reformation. It was verse 17 that was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back in the life of Martin Luther. It was verse 17 that brought him to realize 
what salvation truly is as opposed to what he always had understood. I'll come back to Martin Luther in a moment, but if we as Protestants, and if you're a member of RBC, you're a Protestant, we owe our existence, we owe our understanding of the gospel in large part to Romans 1, 16 and 17, and especially verse 17. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is a sense in which we can say that if we are Protestants and we do not truly understand the 17th verse of the first chapter of this epistle, we are unworthy of the name of Protestant. Indeed, it is even doubtful whether we are Christian at all. There is no more vital verse in the whole of Scriptures than this 17th verse. So, perhaps he stated that a bit strongly, but at least it gives us a sense of, of the importance of what we're walking into here, how important it is that we understand what Paul is writing. And so we're going to consider our salvation in three ways this morning as we look at these two verses. The first thing we see is that if you are a Christian, you are saved from God. When we read verse 16, we have our setup. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And I've said it a few times recently, I hope you read your Bibles in such a way that when you come to words like this, you think to yourself, salvation implies that I am saved from something, I am rescued from something. I was in danger, and if I'm saved, I'm no longer in danger. So what was that danger? What was I saved from? And thankfully, Paul answers that question for us, but in some ways, I think it's an answer that we least expect. When we think of our salvation as Christians, we are most prone to think of it in terms of our being saved from hell, or our, our salvation from sin, or from death, and all of these things are true, but they are not what the Bible ultimately has in mind when we talk about Christian salvation. The reality is that we are saved from God Himself. We are saved from the wrath of God. Now, Paul is really setting us up here for what is going to, what, what's going to come more specifically in the verses to come, but he does give us some foundational information here in verse 17. Notice the language, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you see what he's saying there? In the gospel, we have the power of God for salvation, and in that powerful gospel is revealed the righteousness of God. And that is not instantly good news to us, because God's righteousness is our problem. This is the puzzle of Christianity that is both presented and solved in the gospel. So first, why is the righteousness of God a problem for us? Very simply, God is righteous and we are not. But God requires that we are. And, and so because we are not righteous, we are naturally at enmity with God. We are naturally enemies of God. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
And listen, that, that wasn't just hyperbole. Jesus wasn't just trying to throw people off. This is exactly what all the Bible teaches us. God gave Adam and Eve a covenant of works that they were able and called to fulfill. And if they fulfilled that covenant, when it was all said and done, with all of its obligations, they would have everlasting life, and that would belong also to their offspring. And yet we know the story. They, they, they failed to fulfill this covenant of works. But their failure didn't annul the covenant of works. It didn't go away. And, and in fact, outside of Christ, outside of being in Christ, you too are under a covenant of works. If you are not in Christ, this is God's Word to you. Be perfect. You must be perfect if you are not found in Christ. Do you see the problem? I've talked to a lot of people who have rejected the gospel and who are no lovers of Christ, but I have yet to meet one that will honestly tell me that they are currently and have always been perfect. We'll get into how that very idea of perfection and right and wrong, how those things come to rest in our hearts in the next few weeks, because this is certainly part of the equation. But think about that. God requires perfection of everyone everywhere, and everyone everywhere will admit to you, I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect. And that's the problem. You see, that's the problem. That's the problem with verse 17. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The fact that God is righteous and I am unrighteous is our problem. Why? Because we will learn in the weeks ahead from some very tough truth to swallow that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Look, just peek ahead at verse 18 and you'll see this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's not good. Because every one of us fits into this category, right? Now remember, I, I mentioned Martin Luther before, and he struggled really hard with this reality. Here's what Martin Luther wrote about this verse in 17. He said, I had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans, but a single word in chapter 1, verse 17 in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. Luther was right, wasn't he? It is God's righteousness that stands against us. It is God's righteousness that stands in such stark contrast to our unrighteousness. But it is God's righteousness that is the standard for all of life. It is God's righteousness in the words of Martin Luther that stand in our way. And so what is the result? What does Paul write in verse 18? He doesn't emphasize hell. He doesn't emphasize death. He doesn't come anywhere close to emphasizing anything of the difficulty and suffering in this earthly life. No, he emphasizes the most terrifying reality that any of us could ever encounter, namely the wrath of God. 
Those other things are all wrapped up in God's wrath, but, but it is God's wrath that is emphasized, and it is God's wrath from which we must be rescued. God defines what is good. He defines what is right. He defines what is perfect. God defines the standard by which those realities will be determined. And God has made plain that all of us, all, every single one of us, falls far short of this as a result. And His anger and His judgment are revealed from heaven against all of it. And so what do we do? We'll see more clearly in the weeks ahead that our natural tendency is to twist and distort this truth, to seek to justify ourselves, to try to appease our own consciences, but it will not do. We can deceive others. We might even be able to deceive ourselves, but we can never deceive God. Now, if we don't quite get it from chapter 1, Paul goes in again in chapter 2 in verse 5. He says, because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart, you are stoking up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Have you ever been stubborn and unrepentant? Of course you have. We all have. And what is the result? Paul reminds us, it is all on us. We are storing up wrath for ourselves. And what does that look like? It looks like a day of wrath and revelation of God's righteous judgment. God is a just judge, and God's wrath and God's judgment are fair. They are righteous. He goes on later, verse 8 in chapter 2, he says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Who is that? Who is he, who is he talking about? That is everyone. And what is the result? What does Paul say will happen? He continues, there will be wrath and fury. That is a huge problem, isn't it? For all who submit to unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. God is angry. He is wrathful toward us in our unrighteousness. So perhaps you see this more clearly. If we are truly saved, what are we saved from? The question more accurately, is no longer what we are saved from, but whom. And the answer should be more clear to us now. We are saved from God Himself, from His righteous judgment and indignation. We are saved from the wrath of God. The second thing we see is if you are a Christian, you are saved by God. You are saved from the wrath of God and it is God who saves you. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you and I could not live to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus died a sinner's death that you deserve to die so that you will not have to endure God's wrath. Jesus endured the wrath of God on the cross in your place for you. In fact, it wasn't the wrath of God just for, for your sins, but for the sins of all of His people. Jesus suffered more on that cross in one instant than you would ever suffer in hell for all of eternity. And He did it all so that everyone who believed might not have to experience death, 
but instead life. Jesus was was buried in the tomb for three days and gloriously raised from the dead so that you and I do not have to experience death. We do not have to truly die. We will simply fall asleep in this world and awaken in the life to come because as Jesus promised that thief on the cross on His day of His death, today, today I will see you in paradise. The gospel is the good news that God has rescued us from God in decreeing redemption, in accomplishing redemption, and in applying redemption. God the Father and God the Son covenanted together in eternity past to save a people. The Father decreed that Christ would live and die on behalf of all who would be His bride, the church. The Son, Jesus Christ, accomplished redemption in doing all that He did in our place. The Holy Spirit applied that redemption in the work of regenerating our hearts, sanctifying us, continually working in us to give us an understanding of the Scriptures, giving us a conviction of our sins, praying with us and for us before the Father, and giving us the power and wisdom and direction to walk faithfully with God day by day. So you see, we're not saved from this world. We're not saved from ourselves. We're not saved from evil and injustice that is all around us. We are not even primarily saved from hell. When we talk about salvation, we're talking about being saved from the wrath of God by God. He planned and He accomplished All that He did to rescue us from His own anger, from His own righteous judgment. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation from the wrath of God. The power that brings us into eternal safety and joy in the presence of the righteous Father. So when verse 16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation, it means that the gospel is God's power to rescue sinners from His own wrath or from the righteous judgment of God. God demands that we are righteous, but we have no righteous. So the only hope that we have for safety, the only security that we can ever have is that God Himself would give us the righteousness that He demands, and that is exactly what He does. What is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God for us that He demands from us. So Paul's main intent in verse 17 is to show us that our justification before God is because the righteousness of God has functioned as the law to show us that we don't measure up. And then it has been imputed to us so that in Christ we now have a right standing before God. In other words, God counts us as having His righteousness because Christ fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. Notice in the first half of the verse, Paul's referring to God's righteousness. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. But then look at the end of verse 17. Paul's quoting here Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, and he writes this. He writes, the righteous shall live by faith. 
who now is righteous? Notice, notice the difference here. The one who lives by faith here. So you see the twofold nature of this righteousness in this verse. How does that second righteousness, who lives, the one who lives by faith, how does that get there? He tells us right there in the verse, doesn't he? It gets there. The righteousness of God is imputed to us. It is counted as our righteousness. How? By faith. He writes, from faith, for faith. And then those who have the righteousness of God imputed to them live by faith. This is precisely what he confirms in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 9. Remember, this is where Paul is outlining all of his credentials as a Jew among Jews. And then at the end of it all, he says, For Christ's sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Here it is. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, I know that phrase that Paul uses, from faith for faith, is a bit confusing, but hopefully this helps us. He's not referring to the righteousness of God as an attribute of God primarily. No, he's referring to the righteousness of God that is given to us by faith in Christ, and it is only when we are clothed in the righteousness of God that He has given us this faith that we can come to the presence of God. And the gospel is the announcement that this is God's way of salvation. This is the righteousness which God Himself gives to us in a way where we are made righteous in the presence of God Himself. This is salvation. This is at the heart of our salvation. Nothing you feel, nothing you think, nothing you do, but this tremendous thing that God Himself has done and has given to us freely for nothing, without money, without price, only by faith, and that faith itself is also a gift from God. So how does this play itself out in our lives? The last thing we'll look at this morning is if you are a Christian, you are saved to God. You were saved from God, you were saved by God, and you were saved to God. The righteous shall live by faith, Paul writes. What does that mean? What is this faith? How is it manifest in our lives? This is a very important question because it is very misunderstood. Many people assume that, that faith is something we all possess, and we just, sort of, we just sort of exercise that faith in any way or in any direction we wish. But that is not at all what the Bible shows us faith is or where it comes from. Faith is not something we possess in ourselves. It is not inherently within us. Faith also is not a, a blind following. Faith is not blind. Faith is not something we do with some unconscious ideas or, or some just leading that we are paying no attention to. We are not putting aside reality and instead walking by faith. In fact, true faith is active, true faith is thoughtful, true faith engages all of our senses. And if it doesn't, it's not true faith. 
Faith is something the Bible teaches us that is given to us by God, and it is to be exercised towards God that we would live our lives out to the glory of God. So real faith is something that is unique to Christians. Faith is the exact opposite of everything we assume about how we can be right with God in and of ourselves. Faith is the very thing that that God uses to show us that all of our assumptions about what we should do or, or could do, that we would think that we merit something, that all of these ideas are worthless. It is only by faith that we can be saved by God from His own wrath. And it is by faith that we are able to do so as a gift from God. Faith is an instrument. It is God's instrumentality. Faith is the means by which God's righteousness comes into our lives and is counted to us. Now, you may be confused by our belief that we are justified by faith and assume, ah, you see, it's my faith, and by my faith God has called me justified. But that's not what this means, and verse 17 shows us that. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that saves us and nothing else. We must have that clear in our minds. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone that saves us. Because faith is not a work. It is not something we have. It is not something we do. It is something that God gives to us as a gift. And if we turn faith into a work, we've destroyed the very thing our faith sets out to show us we cannot do, but only God can do. It is Christ who is our justification. It is Christ who has secured our salvation. But the application of that salvation to my life comes through faith, which is given to me by God alone. So, Paul's major emphasis here, by faith to faith, and the righteous shall live by faith, is an emphasis that salvation is according to God's method of righteousness by faith, not the supposed righteousness of man, attempting to keep the law, not a righteousness that comes through any human endeavor or activity, even though we want to call that faith. It is a righteousness of God by faith. And now it is revealed to faith in believers. Think of it this way. It is only the man or woman or child who has faith who can see God's righteousness revealed to them. And it is only those who have faith that will rejoice in God's righteousness and glorify Him and live on to Him because of it. Brothers and sisters, we have this tremendous gift of faith. It's given to us by God that we might live our lives onto Him. He saves us from Himself, He saves us all by Himself, and He saves us to Himself, all that we can know the peace and the joy and the relief of being safe, of being secure, of being embraced, of being loved by our great and glorious God that we might always and forever live for Him and by Him and through Him and to Him. And how do we do that? by faith to faith. In other words, by the faith that God has given onto a faith that will continue on and continue to keep us in God's kind provision. 
by the faith that God has graciously bestowed upon us, and that faith opening the door to let in the light of God's righteousness, to awaken and sustain us, that we will continue to grow with more and more faith in the years and the life to come. The Christian life, you see, is not just that we are saved, which is gloriously true. No more fear from ambush from the world and the flesh and the devil. We do not need to live in a spirit of fear because we are safe and secure in Christ. But the Christian life is so much greater than simply not being fearful. The Christian life is a life of continuing to believe, continuing to have faith, continuing to press on day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. It is a persevering faith. That's what it means to live by faith to faith. We're persevering. Our confidence, brothers and sisters, is that God will help us to live and save us, not only here, but for the wrath to come on the day of judgment. And it's all based on our ever-renewed assurance that our acceptance with Him is based on the gift of His own righteousness and not our own. So every time we see a command in Scriptures to do something, and trust me, we will see a lot of those in the second half of the book of Romans. But when we see a command to do something, we must not think, I have to do this to take away my guilt. I must do this so that God will forgive me. No. Instead, you must think, I will do this because my guilt has been removed and I am already forgiven and I have the gift of God's righteousness and I know that God is for me, not against me, and God will forever be my help. God will forever be my salvation. So I will trust in Him. I will obey Him. I will live in His glory and seek to draw nearer to Him as I live by faith. He saved me from Himself. He saved me by Himself. He saved me to Himself. So I I will joyfully live for Him and commune with Him all the days of my life unto eternity forevermore. That is the great blessing that we have, brothers and sisters, as Christians, to be saved from God, to be saved by God, to be saved to God, that we could live with Him and for Him forever and ever and ever.